We're going to be in the book of Luke this morning, and as Sarah was saying, I mean, this is a this is a day of celebration about the rescue of Jesus to His people. And so, as dark as Lent can be, as as terms of a season, this is kind of a bright spot in a lot of ways. So, this Palm Sunday, this uh, this is. Uh, a time of year that's that's unique. Um, you know, when when Advent comes to an end at Christmas time, on Christmas Eve, you kind of enter into uh, like a storytelling kind of mode because you begin to think about on Christmas Eve night uh, about what was happening that night in Bethlehem, and you, and it's easy to connect with stories. That's I mean, we're we're built to be storytellers and story listeners. And, and that's so much of how we have learned through our way through life. And so Christmas Eve is one of those times where you can kind of, in, in real time, in linear time, you can kind of think about what was happening back then. And you read the stories and you're thinking it was, a, it was kind of happened like this. Well, Holy Week is another one of those, those times where, where we know what happened on Sunday of that week. We know what happened on Monday. We know what happened on Tuesday. And so we're able all throughout this week to, to kind of know in terms of like linear time what Jesus was doing and uh, you know, the, kind of the broad strokes and what was happening at that time. And so Holy Week is uh, it's one of the, the most important weeks of the year because I think in terms of narrative and storytelling and things like that, this, is, this gives us a chance to connect with the Bible in a way that is just unique. It's, I mean, Christmas Eve is awesome, but it's just one night. And this is, this is an eight day stretch where we get to do that. And so, uh, we'll do that in different ways. And some of that is, is we'll be, you know, sending out and kind of like reminding you uh, when you put all push all the gospels together, here's what we know happened on Monday, Tuesday, that kind of thing. And then, um, you know, we'll talk, I'll talk in a few minutes more about what John referenced and what we sang about in terms of the triumphal entry. Thursday was the night was that's when uh, the the Passover would begin and so on Thursday evening was when Jesus gathered his disciples into what we call the upper room and that's when he took the Passover meal and redefined it and uh, that's when that's where we get the Lord's Supper from and so on Thursday night here we're going to gather together and we're going to have a service where we're going to we're going to look at what they did that night uh, it will not be a like somber communion service because it wouldn't have been a somber communion service for them. Um, now we get really dialed in and focused on communion services and they're very serious. That's very appropriate. But in terms of linear time, Thursday would have been, they would have been excited to be together. It was finally the, it was the, the Passover and they're doing the Passover with their rabbi for like the third time. And they've, they love, it's just a really, really big deal. So they would have been happy to be together. Jesus gives them a brand new commandment. And that's really what a Maundy Thursday service is about. It's, it's the new commandment to love one another as he has loved them. And so we'll be in here on Thursday night and we're going we're gonna to set the room up a little bit differently and it's going gonna, gonna to all be very different. Um, and so I, I, like, I don't know where that falls in your like, timeline of your week, but I would encourage you to be here. We got childcare lined up. We're, it's it's going to be great. That's Thursday, and then they leave from the upper room, they go to Gethsemane where he prays, and then he is betrayed and arrested and all that stuff. And so Friday becomes the dark, that's the darker day. That's, that's the hard one. 
where we know at around at midnight he was arrested and at 6 a.m. this happened and at about 9 this happened and about 12 this happened and about 3 this happened and about dark this happened and so we'll gather together and it'll be it's it's serious that should be the the worst day of the year for us because that was the day that our first love was murdered and slaughtered and uh to think of disciples, to, for someone you love to go through what he went through should be dark and it should be heavy. And uh, we're not going to like manipulate you or anything like that, but we're going to give the day the attention that it deserves. Culturally, it doesn't get the attention that it deserves, but for the people of God, we need, we need to gather. We need to sing the sad songs. We need to recognize what has happened on that day. So that'll be Friday. And then uh, Saturday is kind of a weird day because the, you know, no one really knew what to do with the disciples. And we don't know what to do either, so we don't have anything that day. And then Sunday, it's on on Sunday, right? But this is, this is a holy week, and Jesus sets it into motion um, by riding into Jerusalem uh, to quite a bit of fanfare. And so um, we're going to read in Luke 19, and I'm going to interject at a strategic point some of the text from Matthew's version because they're... They're, you know, they're, they're using different sources to put these gospels together and they kind of sometimes have different details, which I think God wants us to have them all. And so we're going to kind of mash them together, but we're mainly be in Luke, um, starting chapter 19, starting verse 28. All right. And when he, when he had said these things, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany and at the Mount, of, uh, the Mount that's called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as uh, he had told them. And when they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. Okay. So Jesus is intentionally doing this. He doesn't own an animal. Um, he has no real possession. So he has to like borrow one, which is really like kind of funny and kind of sad and kind of, man, we serve a God who's like, Hey, let me borrow that. I mean, I created it. You know, like it's mine really, but let me borrow it in air quotes. Um, so he like gets, gets this animal and it's all tied into this prophetic picture of the Messiah that everyone's been holding on to for a long time, which I'll talk about in a second. But what, what happens next, uh, a lot of times it's described as a parade, you know, and I know in Louisiana, like, you know, I was like, we love a good parade. Some of you love parades. Some of you do not like parades, you know. It's kind of a divisive issue sometimes. Um, but I, I think it's different than a parade because in a parade, you just go and they, these floats come by and people you know, like throw you things and you take it or you don't, you know, and it's just kind of a, you're not really there for anything. I think it's more like uh, there's, a, there's a tradition on LSU game days that I think it's maybe closer to this. And not, not everyone knows that this happens because some people have never been to a game. Some people go every now and then and stuff like that. And it all depends on when you get there and all that kind of stuff. But there's a, there's a point. And uh, so I was in uh, the Golden Band from Tigerland when I was in college. And the last year I was in college, I was the drum major, which means I was the guy in the white suit out in the front, you know, calling the shots, basically. That's right. So... Uh, <laughs> Which I, which I found out later on that the white suit has a lot of, it has a lot of sequins all over it, which is really awesome. Uh, and so, 
So basically the, the band hall is a distance away from the stadium. And so rather than just meeting at the stadium or something, they get together at the band hall, get everything ready, step out into the street, and the band marches to the stadium. And so... Um, Kind of, kind of the way the sequence of events, like they're at the Greek theater and they're all off, off of the street on the side and the cops are there and they're getting every, the escort ready and all that. And so then the drum major walks out and blows the whistle and everyone runs out and they get in formation and they start playing, uh, like the drum line starts playing this cadence that they play like over and over and over again until you get there. And so you're marching and you're kind of going along and you like come down the streets or whatever. And as you're going, like there's, people are getting really, really excited. And that's, there's a really weird thing about that particular marching band that I do not understand is that people go crazy. It could be alcohol related. It could be whatever, but it's, it's the weirdest. It's just the weirdest thing. I've never seen it in any other context where people get so jacked when the, like the band's coming. And so as you're going along, if, especially when you're at the front and that's what, that's what I want to talk about is my vantage point that last year was way different than I was when I was in the back. So I'm in the front and I'm seeing all the people and they're dancing and they're so excited and they're cheering for you. And they're they're If, if you know them, they're calling your name and trying to get you to smile. And it's like a big rule. Can't smile, whatever. So, uh, they're trying to mess with you and all that stuff. And, but as you go, they're getting like more and more excited and the crowd gets crazier and crazier and crazier. As you get, you get close to the stadium, there comes a point where you turn a corner and you go down this big hill. And when you turn that corner, there is what it seems like a million people. Uh, it's like, it's just a sea of humanity that's uh, and purple and gold. And when you turn that corner, you're like the very first time I, I could not believe it. I couldn't believe it. And all the ones before me, they were like, look, you better keep it together when you turn that corner because it's going to freak you out. And it did. Uh, and not just the first time, every time, even the last time I was like, just like I wasn't even ready for it. And this was back when they were terrible. I, I can't imagine what it's like now that they're somewhat relevant in football. So, um, so you come down the hill and the police are, they're pushing people out of there, like, like nudging people out of the way to the sides and there are people who will, when the band's coming down the hill, they'll stand on the, in the middle of the street on purpose and wait till the last minute. So when they part the waters, they end up on the outsides. And so the, the band's coming down and they're playing the cadence and it's really, really slow. And the people, they're just getting crazier and crazier and crazier. And you just, you just cannot believe that they're so excited for what is about to happen. And they are pumped for you, a marching band, to come in and to stop and to play four notes. That's all they want you to do. They just want you to play the four notes. And so you get down and there's this one, there's like a certain light pole where you stop and they stop and the drum line like plays the halt beat and everything stops and everyone goes just berserk to the point where when the drums start playing the intro to the fight song, you can't, you can't hear them. You know, I'm 20 feet away from the drums and I can't hear them. Because people are so excited and they're screaming and they're so stoked. And when the, you finally play the four notes and you look over here and you play the four notes and everyone goes bananas and over here. And, and then it gets to the point where the song speeds up and you kind of start running and you like run into the stadium and you like just the cops are just pushing people out of the way. And they're just there's just so much pandemonium. They're so excited about what you're doing. It's the weirdest, most awesome thing in the world. And i I'm very privileged to have been able to be at the front of that line at some point. And it's, it's to the point where you're, you're overwhelmed and you like, um, you just almost can't even keep it together. You're so excited. You can't interact with them, but they're so pumped. This frenzy of an atmosphere is what I think was closer 
to the triumphal entry than maybe like a parade where they're throwing you some beads, you know. This was, they were excited about what was happening and who the object was, and the entire atmosphere was so just bonkers that I think we have to realize that as we read the passage. So let's read, let's read what happens next. It says, verse 35, They brought the donkey to Jesus, and bar, uh, throwing their cloaks on the colt, they, set, they sat Jesus on it. And he rode along. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. Okay, so he's coming along, and they're taking off their, their outer garments, their cloaks, and laying them on the ground, kind of like at a wedding when they like roll out the long, whatever you call it, and then the little kid comes and throws petals on it. Like it's, it's like, no, the, like you should not walk on normal ground. That did not happen for Tiger Man, by the way. Um, verse 37, and as he, as he was drawing near... Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This was not like a, uh, a like, like keep it together, really conservative, like uh, let's sing the doxology and be very pious in this moment. They are screaming this with all that they have. They are, they are beyond stoked to be there. It is insane. Now in Matthew 21, you don't need to turn to it, but in Matthew 21, 9 through 11, this is how Matthew describes it. It says, and the crowds that went before him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That is, save us from the, from the, from the heavens. God, save us and save us now. You are the one who has come to save us. They're, they're welcoming him. They're basically saying, we know that you are the rescuer that's come from heaven to be our Messiah. And we're going to just scream our joy and lose our minds because you are here. Verse 10 this is it back in Matthew. It says, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. The whole city. Now, old Jerusalem, is a, it's a big place. The whole city was in a frenzy because the, the word would have spread. Hey, someone's riding in on the donkey and they're screaming Hosanna. Now, this has happened before. Other people have tried to trigger this prophecy, but there's something different happening here. And they're saying, who is this? Verse 11, and the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They know his name. They know where he's from. To jump back to Luke, verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees were like, hey, y'all are singing a little too loud, a little, a little too, uh, too rambunctious today. Anybody ever, ever, anybody ever, like, especially like you, like 90s youth group kids, when the, when the praise and worship music got a little louder, you ever have people try to like shush you? Like, oh, you're, you're, you're singing shout to the Lord a little too loud, my friends. You get a little too wrapped up in that magical key change that Darlene wrote, right? Like it's, there's, there's something that's going on and that's what they're doing. They're saying, hey, 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 this is, this is not, that's not the place for all this. And Jesus says, um, Verse 40, he says, I tell you what, if these were silent, then the stones are going to cry out. It's like, somebody's going to pay attention to what's happening here. 
Now, I don't know if it's like when Tiger Band went down the hill and me at the front, I, I could barely hold it together. Like, emotion, like it was, it was so overwhelming to me. I, I could barely hold it together. But I'm not talking about, like, I wanted to cry. Like, I wanted to, like, bust out of character and, like, slap fives and be like, you know, play it up somehow, turn into The Rock when he was a wrestler, something like that. Like, just, like, whoop the crowd up, something. But I had to hold it together. I don't know if it was the same way. But what was Jesus doing as he's riding in? Now, they, they're cutting palm branches off of trees, which was a, for them, that was kind of like waving an American flag at a political rally. Like that was like the symbol of Jewish nationalism and victory. And so they're, they're waving their version of their national flag and they're, and they're screaming Hosanna at him. They're laying their cloaks and they're treating him like a king. And what is Jesus doing in this? Look at verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept. Jesus is crying. I read a lot of commentaries on this, and some think that he was, like, as he got closer and closer, he got more and more emotional. And when he finally got and saw the city and he saw the people, he wept. The crying Messiah on the back of a donkey, when everyone is like, you're the best, you're the one we're waiting for. And he's crying. Is it good crying or is it bad crying? Look at what he says. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What does that mean? That's a prophetic way of him saying, I, I get what you're doing right now, but you are missing the point so much that it breaks my heart. This whole big political rally, this whole big celebration is so far off track that all I can do is cry. If you only knew what real peace was, if you only knew who I was, but you don't, and it's about to get so hard. He goes the rest of the week, he's stirring things up. He goes into the temple and, and cleanses the temple with, with money changers. And he, he, he takes a, a dark turn in, in his teaching. He starts to tell him like, look, uh, something bad is coming your way. And they're like, no, nothing can bad come our way because the Messiah is here. He's like, no, you don't understand. And so he, he's just so heartbroken about what's going to have to come to them and the pain that's there. They just didn't get it. And so here we are, Palm Sunday. We have to have, we have to get it. They didn't get it. Talk about why. We, we have to get it. Jesus was there to, he was redefining some things. He was, he was giving new meaning. It's what he did with the Lord's Supper. It's, it's what he did with so many things where he's like, you think it means this, but I'm telling you it means this. And even with the triumphal entry and the things that play out during Holy Week, he's giving new meaning to the point where this new definition needs to become all that we really know. Here's, here's what I mean by redefining stuff. Like, so, all right, so there's a cross in this stained glass. Um, you see it? 
It gets lost. There's a lot going on there. Uh, it's beautiful, and everything has a lot of meaning. But there's a cross that's there. Now, crosses we have them, we have them in, in our homes. We have them uh, in our churches. We uh, we wear them. In uh, in 1989, uh, the maybe one of the dumbest movies ever made came out called Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So dumb. Uh, and yet, still so iconic. It's like one of those like weird, weird kind of things. Uh, but it's really just a bad movie. Um, very quotable and that kind of stuff. And so it's these these like high school surfer dudes, basically like Spicoli from Fast Times. It's like two of him, and they have to work on a history project. And so they use this time machine to go back and talk to people in history. Like if if you were to get into a time machine with Bill and Ted or whatever, George Carlin would be there to be crazy. Um, you were to go back in time, and you were to go, and you were to say, man, I want to go back and watch Jesus do some teaching. And you show up, and you had a cross necklace on, because that's what you were wearing when you got into the time machine. Or you had a cross tattoo on you, or there's so, anything where you're wearing a cross, they would have looked at you like you were insane. Because the cross to them was this, it was the most cruel torture device that anyone's ever come up with. Like it was a deterrent. They would crucify people publicly and they would put their crime on top of, uh, like they would post it and say, oh, you want to steal? Here's how we, this is what we do with thieves in our town. And then you'd have to watch them suffer and die. And then suddenly your desire to steal things would decrease a little bit. It was a deterrent. It was a way to keep the peace and to force people to behave the right way. But it was the, this agonizing, terrible death. It would have been closer to like um, if you were to wear like a ele- picture of an electric chair around your neck. When we see the electric chair, you, you know you get a little. You get a little mm, this is kind of that's maybe closer. But Jesus comes in and he redefines the cross. Right to them, it was this instrument of torture and death. We see a cross, and what what speaks to us is, oh no, that's the pathway to life. You, it was death then, but it's life to us. And so he has redefined it to the point where we have one right up there. And none of us sees it. And you're thinking, oh, torture and death. You're not seeing an electric chair. You're like, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's where my Savior died, you know. He is redefining things. As he rides into town, he is, is redefining some very important things. Let me give you three of them real quick. This is not just about Palm Sunday. This is for Holy Week in general. The first thing that he is redefining, uh, well, there's a ton of them. Okay, so this is, I'm just narrowing it down to three. The first thing he's redefining is, is kingship. We need to understand what's happening here in order to understand the, the plot of, of the week. Um, so there's a couple of things. I, uh, I read a, a sermon by uh, N.T. Wright, and he talks about how this, is, this was like the perfect storm of like, like uh, Jewish influence and Roman influence and then God's influence, like all like converging at one time. And uh, the Jewish influence, what that basically means is that um, to have a king be coronated, whenever he's installed as the king, uh, traditionally he would ride in on a donkey. Um, David made sure that Solomon rode in on a donkey. And so that, that imagery, that storyline would have been told to the children and all that. Like David and Solomon were, they're famous, you know, like all, everyone grew up learning about them and reading David's writings and reading the wisdom of, of Solomon. And, and so they would have known these are the greatest Kings that our people have ever had. And they would know the story that Solomon rode in on a donkey. It's in first Kings chapter one. There's a prophecy in Zechariah. Uh, nine, nine, 
This is quoted in Matthew's passage. This is what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That describes the, that's the, the scene Jesus was recreating because he knew the imagery would be there. He knew that when he came in, they would say, that's, that's like Zechariah, that's in his like prophecies. That's just like Solomon did. Like that's what kings do for us. Um, their expectation would, was one of coronation. This was Jesus' coronation. This was the, the Messiah who had been promised to them. Um, the whole point being, um, we're going to ha- make it happen again. Like the, the, the greatness of David's kingdom and Solomon's kingdom, uh, God's going God's gonna to bring us back to that kind of uh, existence and world power. Kind of a make Israel great again kind of thing. Right? That was the thing is like, no, that's, that's what God is doing for us. Um, he brought us out of Egypt where things are really difficult, made us into this big nation. And, th- and then we messed it up so much, but he's going to bring us back again. That's what the Messiah is here to do. He's the leader. He's the king. He's the one who's going to help us push back against Rome and all of their influence. And so the triumphal entry was a political and military rally. That's what we're looking at here. Um, not so much from Jesus' part. But when they're waving palm branches and they're laying out their coats and they're screaming Hosanna, they're saying save us, but they're not saying save us from the same thing that we think they are. It wasn't just kingship that rules, it's a kingship that fights. They knew kings as generals. It was kind of a, um, kind of a king and a general kind of wrapped into one, like, George Washington or Ulysses S. Grant or Eisenhower. They were these military power, like military great minds who were also leading a country and a nation. It wasn't only shaped by David and Solomon. It was also shaped by Rome. So that's the, that's the Jewish expectation is the Messiah is going to bring us back to world dominance. And and this guy's the one who's going to do it. Then you have this, this kind of Roman influence where, um, like Rome is in charge at this point and Rome has been like, uh, just dominating the world, eating up territory everywhere. And so, uh, everything that happens in Jerusalem was done with the permission of Rome kind of overseeing it. And they just want everyone to just kind of just behave themselves. That was the main thing. And so as they're kind of just trying to keep the peace and all that, um, you had Julius Caesar and Octavian and Tiberius, like this line there, and they were considered to be gods or sons of God. And so there's this, this real, um, this rhetoric that exists as Jesus is like, oh, no, he's, like, he's the son of God. And someone's like, oh, but I thought Tiberius was the son of God. So it's basically like, who's really the son of God? Is it the Jewish guy or is it the Roman guy? That creates a lot of tension. When, when Rome is in charge of everything, they just oppress you. They're like, no, you're not going to challenge us. So there's all these tensions there that exist. But the thing is, they, they had heard about David and Solomon. They knew the stories. They knew all about that prominence. But they had seen the force of Rome. They had seen the military. They, they had seen that in person. And so to them, that's what a king does. A king has this like, military strength. A king is a general. And so they're pulling Jewish history and expectation, but they're also pulling what they've actually seen with Rome all into one thing. 
So you have Pontius Pilate, who's the governor at the time. Uh, he's Roman, overseeing this whole territory. He would have come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Here, this is crazy. I read this yesterday. He would have come to Jerusalem for the Passover um, to keep the peace because they didn't want they didn't want all the Jews getting like all worked up. They knew that there was a revolt kind of working, so he would have come. I read this yesterday. They said that that if if you look at where he resided. He would have come to Jerusalem and he would have come uh, from the west. He would have ridden into town, probably on a horse, because that's how Rome would do. They would come in with this big, big presence and all this hoopla to kind of establish their dominance. Jesus rides in from the east on a donkey. And so there's this tension that's happening historically where it's like, well, who's going to be the, who's going to be our king? Are we going to bow to Rome? Are we going to bow to God's Messiah? And so Jesus is picking a fight here. I love that so much. He's like, I'm going to borrow this donkey. I'm going to pick this fight real quick. Let me weep. (laughs) So there's this tension that's happening and they're all thinking this really weird idea about it, what it means to be a king. Now, Jesus comes in to redefine what it means to be a king. And that's completely relevant to us as citizens of his kingdom. Because we have to, we have to understand who this king is and how he's redefining it. And so, he's the opposite of the Roman Caesars. He's the, he's the perfected version of David and Solomon. When they call him the king of kings, that's what we're saying. Here he is riding into town. Instead of being on a war horse, he's on a donkey. <laughs> he's on this, this beast that is known for humility. He's on the, what they call a beast of burden. He's on a, an animal that's built for work. He's not there in the military strength and might of Rome. He's bringing peace. He's bringing love. He's not bringing intimidation and dominance. To the point where we're not even going to need like weapons in his kingdom. He's like, man, those swords, that's a waste of good metal. Let's beat those things into farming tools so we can eat. You're not going to need those fighting, those things to fight anymore. With this king, the priority goes to the poor in spirit and those who mourn and the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and the merciful and the pure in heart and the peacemakers and the persecuted. He looks at them and he calls them blessed. Earthly kingship looks at them and says, you're weak and we're going to stomp you. And this king comes in and says, no, I'm I'm gathering you together. You're blessed because I say that you're blessed. To this king, the last or first and the marginalized are important and the widow and the orphan have a family and a home. See, he's, he's bringing a new definition of kingship and a new definition of kingdom. If you read various points in the Psalms, Psalm 2, 72, 145, here's an excerpt from Psalm 72. This is, this is, this is the kingship that he's bringing. See if this sounds like, like one of the Caesars from Rome or what or one of those make Israel great again, like political rally things they're trying to put on Jesus. It doesn't sound like either one of them. It says, for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. 
From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. See, this is, this is what a king looks like. This crowd is missing it completely. They just, they just want a, a general. They just want Israel to become this world power. They don't care what it costs. And that's part of why Jesus is weeping. Because he's like, no, that's, I've been here for three years. I've been teaching and preaching and developing you. And you're still missing it. You don't miss it. They had all these previous kings in the Old Testament. They, you'd have a good one every now and then, but his, his impact wouldn't last. Jesus says, well, actually, I'm, I'm coming to establish this, and it's never going to end. It is an unshakable kingdom, because I'm an unshakable king. This will never end. I want you to get it. And so may he weep for them, but not weep for us, because he's redefined it. We don't have to have it... We don't have to have him uh, correcting us anymore. That's part of why we gather. That's part of why the church is important, that we're keeping the correct understanding of kingship in front of us. The second thing that he redefines is deliverance. They're, they're screaming, Hosanna. Save us. Save us now. They're, they're crying out for deliverance. And there was this, this idea that the, it was a second exodus. If you go, so the Passover was a celebration of their freedom from slavery in, in Egypt. And so they would gather together and they would, there's all these things that they would do. And a part of it was, was they would, would go through the story of what happened. And it was supposed to be celebrating God's faithfulness to his people. And it, was that, but it like almost greater than that. It was this like, like, yeah. And then, then Israel got to be this world power and he's going to do it again. They became very power hungry and very nationalistic and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, at Passover they're they're celebrating God's faithfulness, but what they're really saying is, man, we can't wait till we're just ruling the world again. It's going to happen. What happens in Passover is everyone gets stirred up about revolt. So Rome shows up extra heavy, extra, extra heavy presence, and um, trying to kind of keep things under wrap. So the, the reason why Jesus is redefining deliverance is because he's weeping because they're like, man, you're, you're asking to be delivered from the wrong thing. You think that Rome is your oppressor. Just like your uh, forefathers thought that Egypt was their oppressor. Guess what? They were wrong. And you were wrong. And I've been trying to teach that and show that and invite you into that. And some of you get it, but so many of you don't see it. You're so focused on what's making your lives difficult circumstantially and who's holding you back and all these kinds of other kind of things that he says, but you're missing the point. I'm here to deliver you from your real oppressor, which is your own internal brokenness from your sin. That's what I'm here to deliver you from. And so spiritual death is the enemy. That's the real problem that we need a solution. And he's, it breaks his heart that they don't get it. And, So when they're crying out Hosanna, they're crying to the right person. They're just asking for the wrong thing. They're saying, save us from Rome. 
Make Israel great again. Bring us back to world dominance. You're the general we're going to get behind. We're ready to fight with you and behind you. We're in it all the way. And he's saying, man, no, you're not ready. I'm going to free you. I'm going to free you, but I'm going to free you for what is really oppressing you. So yeah, there would be a, a second exodus, sure. But not in the same way that they were thinking. So he brings in this new understanding of kingship as he is, is coming through town. He's realizing they're like, they're missing it. They're missing it. It's breaking his heart. And they're saying, Hosanna. I don't want to, with, with each time he's kind of cringing because he knows what they're, what they're asking for. And the third thing he's there to redefine is uh, sacrifice. They were part of this system where um, you brought an animal to be sacrificed on behalf of you and your family for your sins to atone for them. And Palm Sunday was the day when you and your family would go pick out the animal that you would then bring a few days later to be killed. That's when you went and you picked that animal out was on this day. So think, think about that for a second. Here's Jesus riding through town on the day when you pick out your lamb. And he's riding through and they're crying out to him and they just don't get it. It says in Hebrews 10, verse 11, it says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That's what, that's what they are used to. So they're asking for political and military deliverance. And they're thinking, the spiritual stuff? No, we got that covered because we'll just go kill an animal later on. It'll be fine. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's, that's what you're supposed to do. But behold the Lamb of God who takes away sins of the world. Like, that's, that's who I am. The next verses in Hebrews, it says, verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for, footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he's perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. Sanctified, sorry. So in a sense, the triumphal entry is Jesus' presentation of himself as the, the last lamb they would ever need. He's redefining sacrifice. To them, they thought it was this system of bringing an animal in. He's essentially saying, hey, I'm going to put an end to that system forever. So from now on, in terms of sacrifice, you will no longer need to think of slaughtering an animal. But here's what I do want you to think about. This is what he tells his disciples. It's what we'll talk about on Thursday. He gives them a new commandment. This is John 15, verse 12, 13. This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So sacrifice to the, to the people under this kingship who have been delivered from the real enemy of spiritual death. Uh, for us, sacrifice no longer is about killing an animal. Sacrifice is now us laying our own lives down for God and for each other. Paul says that we're the, we're the living sacrifice. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, let's put away this other system. I'm the lamb. I'm the one you're looking for. You came to the city to pick out a lamb. I'm your guy. 
Now, now I want to give you a new way to think of sacrificial living, which is that you live for the Lord and you live for each other. To the point where, if it costs you your life, okay. But what he does with his disciples is he washes their feet. He's like, I want you to, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And so here we are in this like redefined system. We have this king who's brought a different kind of kingdom to us and made us citizens of this new place by delivering us from the real thing that oppressed us. So when we say Hosanna, we're not saying, will you save us? We're saying you saved us. And now we go into this life of sacrifice, but instead of killing animals and feeling like we have to, and we're always coming up short, we live in the freedom that those first two things provide of kingship under the uh, kingdom in this kingship and deliverance. And now we are able to say, yeah, no, I'll, I'll serve you. I'll give to you. I'll share my whole life with you. I'll love you as Christ has loved me because that's, that's the commandment that we live under now. He has redefined it to the point where this whole rhythm we're a part of is completely different. And on Palm Sunday, he pushes the first domino over that hits the second and the third and begins this whole thing that we'll walk through all week long that looks like it ends at Good Friday, but it keeps rolling through Saturday. And then it hits this explosion fireworks thing on Sunday. And so this really isn't a sermon that's like, oh, let's dig into our own stuff and let's contemplate and all this kind of stuff. It's like, no, let's just acknowledge that God, Jesus is phenomenal. He's absolutely phenomenal. And he just invites us into this. And as he rides through this town and he's weeping because they don't get it, we can be the ones being like, no, we get it. We, we get it. It's not lost on us. Nothing against them. We got a little more to work with. But Holy Week is not like any other week of the year. And we get to begin that today. So we're going to respond in a few minutes. And uh, I want to pray for us. Let's stand together as the band comes back. Let me pray for us. God, I'm grateful. Grateful that you didn't leave us in the old definitions of things. Whatever it may be. These are just three of many. And here we are on Palm Sunday celebrating the fact that you, you set these things into motion. And I love the fact that you, that you wept over the, just watching people not understand the depths. I love that we serve a God who will cry on our behalf. I also love the fact that we um, were able to live under these newly defined things that we know the real character of our king and what it means to be in his kingdom, that we know our real enemy is behind us and has no authority over us, no grip on us anymore, and that we're able to live sacrificially as you have loved us. And so as we respond in prayer and in singing and in communion, uh, would you just help us connect those dots? And may, we, may our cries of Hosanna uh, be, be focused on you in the right ways and... Um, May this be a time where we celebrate what you have done uh, and we just express our gratitude to you. We love you and we thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. All right. We're going to sing a little bit. Uh, we have these communion stations that are open. You're, you're welcome to come in our line. You don't have to be a member here. Uh, you take the bread, you dip it yourself, and you take it. And this is a, a, a tangible way, uh, just a reminder that Christ is in us.
when you're taking that bread and that juice and he, he's literally going into your body and that connects something for us. Like, yeah, he's, he's in me, he's with me. I, he has delivered me. And so if you want to say, if, if you have said yes to Jesus, you're welcome in our line. If you want to talk to someone or pray with someone, you're welcome to come to the steps. There's some guys in the front row who'd love to pray with you. But we're going to move around the room for a few minutes, just kind of telling God thank you in song and in prayer and in response. So whatever connects with you the most, you go ahead and, uh, and do that together. We'll sing in just a minute.